Every single one of us was pursued when we didn't deserve it. Every single one of us has been embraced by a Savior who is faithful and true. That's his name. And you need to remind yourself that God is right there with you. You need to remind yourself that God makes promises and that God is faithful to us. Precious promises. The promises of God in Christ are the life of faith and the quickeners of prayer. Friends, do you believe that promise? That God offers the promise of transformation if we surrender to Jesus Christ. excited to continue in our series. Uh, when I was a kid, uh, one of the things we would do often is take family vacation, get in the car each summer and go from place to place, different, different uh, areas. One time we went to Texas, and I remember as a little kid, we went to a place uh, in Texas uh, right on the I-35 corridor that was called the Inner Space Cavern. Uh, the Inner Space Cavern is a natural cave uh, deep in the earth where you're going to find uh, really cool stuff, amazing geological structures like stalactites and, and stalagmites. And, and uh, as I go on this tour as a little boy, uh, I go down about a mile into the, um, deep into the earth. And the farther I go down, the, the darker it gets and the damper it gets down there. So down, down, down. Down And then when we got really deep, uh, the tour guide said, okay, now I'm going to turn the lights off. And let me tell you, when he turned the lights off, there was no light whatsoever down there. Couldn't see a thing, couldn't see the person behind me, couldn't see the person in front of me, couldn't see the person beside me, couldn't see my hand in front of my face. And as a little boy, when that happened, I'm like, okay, wow, it's really dark. I am not going to move. I am going to stand right here. I am not going to uh, move a muscle until these lights come back on. And that was what was, I think, uh, some of the longest uh, 10 seconds of my entire life. As a little kid, that was really unsettling. That was really scary. That was really disorienting to be in that dark place. And I wonder, spiritually speaking, uh, if you can relate to that. I wonder if you have ever gone down to a really dark place emotionally and spiritually uh, today. Uh, the word for that kind of place in the Bible is the word despair. Uh, despair. Uh, the definition of despair is to go to a place that is destitute of positive expectation. Destitute of positive expectation. Despair is a place you do not want to go. Despair is a place that if you go there, a lot of people who do go there do not come back from there. If you, if you go to despair, then, then you know that that is not a fun place to go. It's really dark. You cannot see. Uh, you do not have the ability to find your way out. Maybe some of you have been there. Uh, maybe some of you know all about this place called despair. Maybe some of you actually are right now in that place called despair this morning, and you really know. What is the solution? What is the way out? Uh, is there some promises in the Word of God for our times of despair? Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, those of you who are watching online, the answer to that theological question is yes, yes. This is where we need the promise of God's goodness. We're in this series going through what are some of the most important promises in the Word of God. We have learned that God is by nature a promise keeper. We have learned that he has made his people certain promises. We have also learned that whatever the promises of God are in Christ, for us they are yes and amen. These promises are declarations of what God has told us, his people, that he will do. 
Uh, Last week, we studied the promise of his sovereignty, that he is always in control. And this week, we take another step and we go, okay, I believe that he's in control. I got that. Here's the other question, though. Where in the world is he taking me? Yes, I believe he's in control. Yes, I believe he has a sovereign plan. I know God has the plan, and I know God knows about the plan, and I even know that God has a plan, but that's not the problem, is it? The tension is not that I don't know that God has a plan. The tension is what? The tension is that I don't know the plan. Yes, God, I know that you, know a pl- you have some plan, that you're sovereign, that you're up there planning. And God, I know that you know, but I don't know. And I feel like I'm in the dark. That's why this promise of God's goodness is so very important. And the reason is this, friends. While we wait, God knows that his children, at the end of the day, he knows that the heavy heart needs some assurance of outcome. The heavy heart needs some assurance of outcome. We have to know in the dark that God is going to one day turn the light back on. I don't need to know everything, but I've got to have some assurance and this is where we run into the promise of God's goodness. That's, that's what today's message is about. We're going to unpack this in three separate movements and look at a bunch of relevant scriptures about this. We'll look at, first of all, the promise of God's goodness. Then we'll look at the problem of despair. And then we will finally look at the decision we all need to make today. And that is the decision to surrender. The promise of his goodness, the problem of despair, and the decision to surrender. Why don't we pray for God's help on our time? Would you bow with me today? Heavenly Father, how grateful we are that you have not left us in a place of destitution and despair, that you have not left us in the dark, that instead you have given your word, that you have made promises to your children, and that we might know what you say. And I pray, dear God, that you would help us now to grab hold of it with faith. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable to you. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Okay, movement one, the promise of his goodness. As we begin, let's be sure we know what we're talking about because this word good is probably the most overused word in the entire English language, isn't it? We use it to describe our physical health. I heard you're sick. How are you doing? Good. We use it to describe our emotional state. I heard you were feeling down. How are you doing today? Good. We use it to describe like, you know, mistakes that people make that are minor, right? Don't worry about that. It's all good. We use it to describe the status of our career, right? How's work going? Good. I use it to describe the quality of worship at church. How was church today? Good. We use it to describe the condition of our vehicles. How's your car running? Good. We use it to describe a check which clears from the bank. I hope that check is good. Me too. We use it to describe the weather. How's the weather today? Good. Well, probably not so good these days, right? When a word is used that many different ways, it loses all of its meaning altogether. So let's get a solid definition as we start today for the word good. And for this, I'm going to be heavily indebted to A.W. Tozier. A.W. Tozier was a well-known CMA pastor. Uh, In his excellent book on the attributes of God called The Knowledge of the Holy, there is one chapter in that book on the goodness of God that I have read in my life over and over and over and over. I have read this chapter so many times I've lost count. In that chapter on the goodness of God, he shares with us a definition that I want to share with you today that I trust will be helpful. He says this. He says, the goodness of God is that which disposes him to be kind, cordial, benevolent, and full of goodwill toward men. 
He is tender-hearted and of quick sympathy, and his unfailing attitude toward all moral beings is open, frank, and friendly. By his nature, he is inclined to bestow blessedness, and he takes holy pleasure in the happiness of his people. Now, A.W. Tozer went through a lot of heartache and despair in his life. Lots of stories of church conflict. He had two sons. Both of them were wounded in the war. He had gone through a lot of difficulties, yet through it all, this is what he wrote. He goes on to say this. That God is good is taught or implied on every page of the Bible and must be received as an article of faith as impregnable as the throne of God. It is the foundation stone for all sound thought about God. This is something that the scripture teaches. Let me just give you four categories this morning to think about God's goodness. Follow along with me if you would. Number one, God is good to all of his creation. The scripture teaches unabashedly that our God is a good God. Psalm 33, 5, the earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. Psalm 119, verse 68, Lord, you are good and what you do is good. Psalm 52, 1, the goodness of, the, of God endures continually. Zechariah 9, 17, how great is his goodness. Psalm 106, 1, oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. God's goodness is the eventual conclusion of every generation of his followers. God's heart is like a fountain of goodness. By his nature, he is good. All his laws are good. All his decrees are good. All of his acts are good. All of his... Deeds are good. Everywhere we look, we see the goodness of the Lord. Though this earth is fallen, it still remains some beauty which speaks to God's goodness. Does it not? God is good to his creation. He is good to the fish and to the birds and to all of his creatures that are under his providential care. Job 28, verse 41. Who prepares for the raven its nourishment? Answer, God. The scripture says God is the source of all that is good. James chapter 1. Every good and perfect thing comes from God. In fact, the English word for God comes from the Germanic word for good. That's because God is the very definition of that which is good. He cannot be less good or more good. He is the definition of good. He is what's called in philosophy the sunum bonum, which means the highest good. But this truth is not some abstract concept for the academics or for the ivory towers of philosophy. No, God wants this to be experiential for us, his children. This is why Psalm 34, 8 says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. God's goodness is something he wants you to taste. You ever watch a cooking show? We saw one last Sunday morning right here at uh, Millington, right? You ever watch a cooking show and the person is cooking something and it looks pretty good on the screen? It's a whole different experience to actually taste what that thing is like in person, right? God wants us to taste his goodness. He wants you to experience his goodness yourself. God's goodness is theological comfort food. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Number two, God is good in the expression of his common grace. There is a distinction made between common grace and saving grace. Saving grace is the grace we experience when we accept the gospel of Christ, whereas common grace refers to God's goodness that he pours out on all people, regardless of whether or not they've received grace. So uh, Psalm 145, 9 speaks to this. It says, the Lord is good to all. God is good to those who are unbelievers, who still yet rebel against him, and even though they reject God, he still extend, extends his hand and shows his love toward them. 
This is hard for us to relate to on a human level, yet this is what the scripture teaches us about our God. God allows them to enjoy his creation. God allows them to see things like the beautiful sunrise this morning and the beautiful sunset that we will see tonight. He does not hide these things from their eyes, right? Matthew chapter five says it this way. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. All of the landscape testifies to his goodness, the fragrant flowers, which are like perfume. They smell these things. They look at the beautiful snow. This is a testimony to his goodness. Consider the the beauty of the human body. He has created them fearfully and wonderfully made. Uh, God allows them to have breath as a good gift from his hand. He has appointed sleep for them to be refreshed in their physical bodies. He provides food that is pleasing to the palate. He allows them to have relationships and friends, and oftentimes he will allow them to enter into marriage, and often he will allow them to have children. We, we ought to be grateful for God's common grace and the fact that he is so good, yet often God's people take these things totally for granted. Who can dispute the goodness of God in our lives? Who can dispute, who can accuse God of not being good? Number three, God is especially good to his own children. To those of us who have received the gospel, who who have the right to be called the children of God, who trust in Christ, God cares about his people. In the scriptures, we see again and again and again that God comes to the aid of his people. Uh, Whether that's in the book of Exodus, he's hearing their cry, or the book of Ruth when there's a famine, he is paying attention to his people's needs and bringing with him relief. Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, what that means is that if the God of the Bible, the God of the universe, cares about his people back then in Bible times, then that also means that God cares about his people, you, today. That means he cares about our needs and our troubles. That means we can trust him to be good as well. He is a good God who cares about you. Psalm 23, 6. Surely, David says, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. The verse literally means, if you're his child, goodness and mercy will track you down and hunt you down from the living God. If you are his child, his goodness is coming after you and it is gonna take you over. His will for your life will never be bad. It will always be good. God is good to you in so many different ways. Consider, for example, the answers that he has given you in prayer. Our Father in heaven is so good that he actually delights to hear you pray. For us to bring our needs to him in the name of Jesus Christ and answer according to his sovereign will is something that he is pleased to do. Psalm 84, 11, no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. In fact, in the the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, ask and you will receive, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be open for you. Everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door is open. He says, who among you, if your child were to ask you for a fish, would you give him a snake instead? If your child asked for bread, would you give him a stone? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts to everyone who asks him? He is a good God. He's good to his children. Number four, perhaps the climax of God's goodness. Number four, the climax of God's goodness is God is good in his work of redemption. The most magnificent display of God's goodness is when he sent his one and only son to this earth to offer mercy and grace. This week, 
Uh, NASA celebrated its good accomplishment. Uh, let me put a picture up on the screen of this. They, they celebrated that the six-wheeled rover Perseverance landed safely on Mars to begin another season of exploration and research. Uh, what was interesting to me as I watched the coverage of this this week is how much rejoicing and celebration occurred down on the ground in NASA when they finally brought this particular vehicle to a safe landing. There was eruption and clapping and, and much, much rejoicing over this small effort for NASA. Now, can you imagine what it was like in heaven when the angels saw the Son of God land on the earth in order to save all humanity? Can you imagine what it is like when it says the angels in heaven rejoice if even one sinner accepts the good news of the Son of God? Here God sends his Son to live a perfect life to be handed over to his enemies, to suffer our punishment on the cross of Calvary, to offer us a pardon of forgiveness and give us a second chance. And not only did he die, but he was raised on the third day, victorious over the grave, and then ascends back to his rightful place in the throne of heaven as Lord of all. One day he will put all things underneath of his feet. This all of us receive as his grace and his gospel. Is it any wonder why we call that the good news? God is good in his work of redemption. God is a good God. Who can dispute his goodness? Well, some do. Many do. In fact, we have to answer an important objection here. Many people say, if God is so sovereign, like we learned about last week, and if God is also good, then how, how can he allow bad things to happen all over the world? Or in my life, why does God allow tragedy to strike me? Or why in my life does God allow that thorn to press in my side deeper and deeper every day? Well, that leads us to movement two, doesn't it? The problem of despair. Now, when we talk about despair, we're not talking about something light. Everybody has a bad day. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about despair. Remember, despair, destitute of any positive outcome. Uh, perhaps in the scriptures, as you search the stories of the Bible, there's no greater example of despair than the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis. Remember Joseph? Remember how Joseph had these dreams, but yet his brothers were jealous of him, and how he suffered through those many years, how he was betrayed by his own brothers, how they threw him into a dark pit. Talk about a place of despair. And then they sold him into slavery where he had to serve an Egyptian master named Potiphar. And then while serving righteously, he was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife and then thrown into prison. Can you imagine that place of despair? Now, pause that story for a minute. We'll finish it in a second. There are at least three things that turn our problems into despair. Uh, Pastor James McDonald calls them accelerants. You know what an accelerant is, right? Like if you have a fire and you pour charcoal, lighter fluid on the fire, it accelerates the fire, right? There are three things that accelerate despair. Uh, the first accelerant to despair is the element of surprise. This is when your happiness gets taken away from you suddenly and without expectation. You didn't see it coming. This is what happens when a sports team has like a really big lead and then all of a sudden they, they lose that lead unexpectedly. What do you see on the bench there? You see despair. See, sometimes life is like that, right? It throws us 
a complete curveball. It's a surprise. We weren't expecting this at all. It's shocking. And when that happens, so it's, it's just so disorienting. It feels despairing. Sometimes that can happen. Two, another accelerant to despair is the element of severity. What I mean is something happens to you, and it's not a small thing. It's not, it's not like a parking ticket. It's severe. You've never gone through this before. It's, honey, I lost my job today. It's, they said it's stage two. It's, it's severe. It contributes, it's an accelerant to this despair. It's, it's very severe. The, the third accelerant to despair is, is the element of settledness. See, now this problem has a certainty to it. Now, now this problem is, I, I have this disease. Right? It's, 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 she died. It's, he's not coming back. Settledness. Now, you take any of these things, or, you, or you, you put all three of these things together, and all of a sudden, like lighter fluid on a fire, this thing is blazing and it's out of control, and you feel the depth of despair. Now, the question is, how do I put out this fire? What, what do I need? Some of you, perhaps right now, those things on the screen, you're living through them right now. Perhaps some of you right now, you feel like there's accelerants in your life to despair, and the fire is raging, and it's out of control for you. What do we do? What is the solution? What, what is the antidote? How do we put this fire out? The answer, ladies and gentlemen, according to the scriptures, is holding on to the promise of the goodness of God. Look at what David said, Psalm 27, 13. He says, I would have despaired. I would have despaired if I didn't believe this one thing. If I would have despaired, unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of God, the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I would have despaired if I didn't know this, if he didn't tell me that this was true, if he didn't, know, if he didn't explain to me that he was a good God and that he made promises of his goodness, I would have despaired. And notice he says, unless I would, I would see. I'm not going to just hear about it. I'm going to see. I'm going to see. Not my relatives, not my great-grandchildren one day. No, I'm, I'm going to see. Not my ancestors. No, I'm going to see the goodness of God. When, when am I going to see that? In, in the land of the living I'm going to live to see this. The prayers that I'm praying, I'm going to live to see the, 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 the tears that I'm shedding. I am going to live to see the goodness of the Lord in this situation. Now, does that mean God always answers the way I think he should? No. But it does mean that he is always good. There is always hope. And unlike despair, hope is there's a light at the end of the tunnel. It's not a train. There's always hope for the children of God. Now, the problem with this is when we're in the middle of despair, he doesn't always allow me to see how it's going to work out. In the middle of it, I cannot see that. In fact, let me just give you a, a gesture to help you remember this. Just take your right hand with me, hold up your right hand, and just hold it in front of your face. Everybody in here, everybody at home, just, just take your right hand, just hold it in front of your face for just a second. Now, this is the trial. Your hand represents the trial, and you're going through this thing, and all you can see right now is the trial. All you can see right now is your hand. You can't see now, now just, just back your hand away a little bit. Now, this is what happens over time, maybe years later, maybe, maybe 15, 20 years later, all of a sudden, now all of a sudden I can, I can see the goodness of God. You can put your hands down. But back here, hand in front of my face, I can't see it. I cannot, I, all I can see is this problem. But yet years later, 
Sometimes he showed me. And David says, when I'm right here, I, I would have despaired if I did not believe that one day I would see the goodness of God. That's what we have to hold on to. That's the anchor for this particular sorrow. That's the antidote to this particular disease. When we're in despair, when it's difficult, when things feel dark and out of control, and we realize we can't do anything, we must trust in the promise of his goodness, and we must trust that he will fix it one day. And all of a sudden, we just realize, i got to let God do it. This is why Psalm 46 says, be still and know that I am God. In those moments, i got to go, God, you're going to have to do this. I'm going to give you glory afterward, but I'm going to run to your goodness. Nahum 1.7, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. His goodness is like a stronghold. It's a place where we run to when we have trouble. It's a great refuge. Remember when Moses led the children of Israel up to the Red Sea and there they were in Pharaoh and the Egyptian army was coming and there was no way forward and no way backward. What did Moses say? He said this in Exodus 14, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord. The Lord will fight for you and you need only to be still. That's what we have to know. Isaiah chapter 30 says this, Isaiah 30 verse 15, in quietness and confidence is your strength. In quietness and confidence is your strength. See, this is what we learn from the story of Joseph. This is what Joseph had to hold on to. Somehow in the middle of all of this, I imagine he had every reason to despair. But yet the scripture says that he did not. In fact, at the end of the book of Genesis, there's this amazing verse in chapter 50, verse 20. I'll put it on the screen for you. It says this, Joseph says to his brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. How did Joseph see that? Joseph had to look way beyond his circumstances. Joseph was able to somehow digest and see that their evil actions, though they were sinful, though they are accountable for them, though they are responsible before a holy God, as we all are for what we do, Joseph was able to see that even those evil actions were still part of God's good plan. Now that's really hard to understand. But yet, this is what the scripture plainly teaches. I, I was talking to our worship leader, John, the other day, and he shared a quote from a theologian named George Lawson who was commenting on this very passage, and he explained his thoughts this way about Genesis 50. He said this, The Lord of hosts permits much evil in the world. We are amazed that the God who hates all sin should permit so much sin to find a place in a world which he governs with an absolute sway. Here we find, meaning in Genesis 50, here we find that he not only permits sin, but he makes use of it. No sinner can do any evil that God has not intended to use for the advancement of his own glory. No sinner can do any evil that God does not also determine to use for his own glory. Now, get yourself a cup of coffee and just think about that quote for the rest of the week. Isn't this one of the questions people ask all the time? If God is sovereign, if God is good, how can there be so much evil in the world? The answer is right here, for his own glory. He knows what he's doing, and you're not God. And you must know that he has dealt with sin at the cross, and you must trust that one day he will deal with sin finally when he banishes evil one day in hell forever. But in the meantime, you must know that it somehow serves his purposes. And since he is God, not me, let me not raise my ugly voice in protest. 
Instead, let me hold fast to the promise of God's goodness even when I don't understand. This is the promise that we find that is our memory verse for this week from Romans chapter 8. Let me put it on the screen for you. Hopefully you got a, a memory card as you, as you came in today. We had all these memory verses made up. If you didn't grab one, please grab one on your way out. They have all the scriptures on the back. They're really, really well done. The, the verse for this week is Romans 8.28. You probably know it. It says, and we know that God works all things together for the good, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Can we say that verse together out loud? Ready? Here we go. And we know that God works all things together for the good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. This is a promise from God that he will work out everything. All things. Chuck Swindoll used to tell us the promise is not partial, it's total. All things. All my circumstances, all my failures, all my victories, all my desires. Even my defeats, all things work together for the good. Notice carefully what he says here in this verse. He says, we know, not we hope, not we think, not we wish, not we desire. He says, we know all things will work together for the good. The verse doesn't mean that we won't experience pain or difficulty or suffering. It means even in my pain, there's always a purpose. It's never senseless because it's all under the control of our sovereign good God. God has a plan. Now, often we want to know the future and know the plan, and as a result, we, we don't remember the plan and we get impatient. I remember one time my wife and I sat down for a, for a portrait. It was, it was like a caricature artist, right? And we were sitting there, and the guy's like sketching us, and, and um, we're getting impatient. We're like, how's it coming? How's it, how's, how's it coming? He's like, sit down. It's not ready yet. It's not done yet. Well, I want to see how it's going. How's it going? You know? And I think that's kind of how we are. Sometimes with God's plan. How's it going? Can I see it? Can I see the end? God's like, sit down. We're not done. But it will be good. Right, Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the plans I have for you, God says, to give you a hope and a future. A hope that's the opposite of despair. That's a confident expectation of better things ahead. But sometimes his plan allows for difficulty or even bringing difficulties into my life toward that good end. Just because God is good doesn't mean it's all sunshine and rainbows. His plan might involve suffering. It is not always comfortable. Sometimes it involves tragedy. It is not safe. If you're a Narnia fan, then you remember that scene where the kids are talking about Aslan. And one of the kids says, Aslan is a lion, the great lion. And, and, and Susan, one of the little girls, says, oh, I, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. And Beaver says, safe? Who says anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. See, God's goodness is not always immediately apparent to us. We can't see it at first. It's like looking at a tapestry from the wrong side. God sees the top and he knows what he's doing though. The primary good that he's doing in all of our lives is he is conforming us to the image of Jesus Christ. This is good. So let me just pause and answer that hard question. That hard question that we all ask that many people never feel satisfied about but this is actually the answer in the scriptures. The hard answer to the question of why God allows these things is that we don't always know his reasons. 
His ways are not our ways. Sometimes there is not an immediate explanation for the tragedy. And I know that is so frustrating for you. And I say this with all the empathy I have in my soul. I say this as one of your pastors. I say this with every, every ounce of sympathy I have in my body. That is hard to swallow. But listen, though this is a hard teaching, this is what the scripture tells us, and we must learn it today, and it is this. The sovereign God of the universe does not have to explain himself to you. I know that's a hard teaching of the Bible, but that is the teaching of the book of Job. That is the experience of the apostle Paul. That is the teaching in so many other places that we need to understand there are some things that we will not understand, and for these things, God so often asks us simply to trust him. I want you to believe me, even when you don't understand. If you understood everything, you wouldn't need faith, would you? So here's the question as we move to movement three. Will you surrender to him? Will you surrender to him? The decision of surrender is the decision in front of all of us today. Will I choose to surrender to God and trust in his promises of goodness even when I don't see how they're good? Even when I see that he's allowed certain things into my life that are hard and maybe even brought those things into my life on purpose? Will I choose to surrender to him? Albert Einstein once said, the most important decision you'll ever make is to decide once and for all whether you live in a universe that supports you or whether you live in a universe that is hostile toward you. If you believe in the God of the Bible, then God is for you. But we must take that by faith. <laughs> will you surrender to him? What will you say? Author and Bible teacher Elizabeth Elliot illustrated the principle of surrender one time by telling the story of something she observed on a farm. It was in the highlands of Wales. Uh, she said one time each year the sheep there had to be dipped in this big vat of antiseptic, otherwise they'd be eaten alive by parasites and, and insects. And she was watching this process happen, and while, while she watched the process, she began to feel sorry for the sheep. One by one, the shepherd would seize them and force them into this vat. She said the sheep didn't understand, so they would try to crawl out. And so on the one side of the vat, there was this sheep dog that would force them back in. And on the other side of the vat, there was the shepherd who was trying to grab them and force them back in until he would seize them and grab them and totally submerge them all the way under, eyes, ears, nose, everything under the water. And she said, as I watched this, I realized I had many experiences in my life where I felt just like those sheep, the great shepherd. The Lord was holding me underneath. And when I asked why, I didn't get a word of explanation. Now, here's why that illustration is so good. If you want to explain that to the sheep, go ahead and try. See how it goes. They don't understand. They can't understand. And it's the same for me. And I know this in my mind, but when I feel like he's holding me under, if I don't trust that my shepherd is the good shepherd, I feel like I'm going to die. And so, friends, I need to be humble. We need to be humble. We need to concede our own limitations and trust and let God do it. Trust in the one who knows all things, that he is good. And so the question on the table today is, will you surrender to God and trust his goodness toward you? That's the issue. I know many of you, and truth be told, I have no idea right now if you're trusting God. I don't know. But God knows. I want God to see us trusting him. 
I want God to say, see my servant Job, he trusts me. I want him to say that of me. Maybe I don't want him to say, say that of me. Yes, we do. We want God to see us trusting him. We want to say to God, I believe all things work together for good, even when I don't see it. There's an old hymn called God Moves in Mysterious Ways that says, judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. What that means is when I think God is farthest from me or that God is even turned against me, it is then that he is laying foundation stones in my life for a greater joy and for a greater good. Joy that I couldn't even imagine right now, and I must trust him. We must exercise our faith to believe these things. Do you have a faith in God where you can say, God, even when I don't understand what you're doing, I trust that you know what you're doing. Now, although the Bible does teach that hard teaching that we might not know the reasons for everything, here's what we can know. What we can know is that God is good. We may not understand all the reasons for the bad things and why they might happen, but one of the things that it can never be is that God is not good. We may not always know, but what we know it can't be is that God is not good. After all, look at the cross. We don't look at our circumstances to determine whether or not God is good. We look at the cross, which tells us God is good. We may not know all the reasons why it is, but we know it can't be that he's not good. This is why Paul says in Romans 8, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things. Friends, we serve a good God. And this is his promise today. He's always good. He's always good. Let me invite the worship team to come. And as they do, remember David said, I would have despaired if I had not believed in the goodness of God. The decision we need to make today is, will we choose to stay in the cave of despair Or will we choose to trust in God and believe in his goodness for us? That's the decision. And so often we hear a sermon like this and we kind of forget most of the the content. And so I thought of a gesture just to help you remember uh, the content of this sermon today. And so uh, bear with me if you will. Just take your right hand and just extend it like this with your palm out. And when you do that, let that right hand be a reminder to you that you are trusting that God is sovereign and God is in control. We learned that last week. And then I want you to take your left hand, and I want you to extend that out if you're able toward God. And let this left hand remind you that God is good, and that you trust him, and let that signify that you really do believe that God is good. And there you are, while you may not understand everything, in a perfect posture of worship. Let's pray together. Would you stand as we pray together? Heavenly Father, how grateful we are for your promises. Today we are standing in your presence acknowledging these promises and believing them deep in our hearts and whatever circumstances my brothers and sisters are going through, I pray that you would help them. Help them to believe that you are good. Give us a glimpse and an encouragement of your goodness today. Help them to surrender to you. Maybe you're here today and you say, Pastor, I want to do that today. I want to surrender to Jesus with every eye closed, every head bowed. If that's you, I want to just lead you in a prayer of surrender right now. Everybody in this place, 
If you want to surrender to God and you agree with this prayer, then I want you to just join me. Everybody watching online, if you're under the sound of my voice, if this prayer reflects your heart, then, then just say these words after me. Let's all pray it together. Say this, dear God, dear God, I thank you for your promises. I thank you for your promises. I thank you that you promised me that you are always good. I thank you that you promised me that you are always good. Lord, I confess. I confess that I don't always understand. But today, I want to trust. Forgive me for my unbelief. Forgive me for anything that stands between you and me. From this day forward, no matter what I face, I will trust that you are good. In Jesus' name. And God, I pray that you would seal this promise in our hearts from your word today. For those who are here today who, who, who are sick, I pray for healing. For those who are brokenhearted, I pray that you'd bring comfort. For those who are broken over their sin, I pray that you would allow them to confess and find forgiveness in you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.